when my dad rejected me for his girlfriend when he got out of prison, that to me just was the ultimate. And I had to learn how to forgive and to heal and to move forward. And welcome to the Authentic Wednesday podcast. Each week, my guests and I share our vulnerable behind the scenes stories of giving ourselves permission to take off our masks, let go of our expectations, and embrace our own path of freedom and authentic connection. I'm your host, Bianca Hughes, a lover of authenticity and a licensed professional counselor in Georgia. Hello and welcome to the Authentic Wednesday podcast. It's such a pleasure to have you here listening to the podcast. So welcome, welcome, welcome. So today I have a guest on the podcast and this is episode 48 of the podcast. I am so looking forward to you guys hearing this because we're talking about something that we all have experienced and that is rejection. So we're talking about what it feels like, what it looks like and how to overcome rejection. And I just love the story that our guest is sharing today from her personal experience. My guest today is Rita McGoughlin. She went from 22 years of teaching gifted and talented kids to recruiting talented teachers in Atlanta public schools. She is an award-winning district-wide Teacher of the Year and 2015 Georgia Teacher of the Year Top 10 State Finalist. Rita is best known for implementing an effective nonprofit 501c3 girls mentoring cohort in after-school programs. Her goal is to help young ladies heal from rejection in order to elevate their self-esteem so they can win against bullying. Rita is an advocate for self-acceptance and healthy living. She has authored three books to promote self-worth and healing from your past. Rita lives what she teaches even as it relates to her fitness and 31 years of vegetarianism. So let's go ahead and get into the conversation. So hello Rita and welcome to the Authentic Wednesday podcast. I am so excited to have you here. How are you doing? Very well. Thanks for having me. You are most welcome. Thank you for being here. Oh, yeah, I'm totally honored. I'm so excited, as always, about my guests and just their stories. And Rhea has an amazing story and experience that so many of us can relate to, including myself. So, but before we get into all of that, tell me. So my favorite question, I love to ask all of my guests, what does authenticity mean to you? I love the word and I use it a lot. Um, Authenticity um, or being authentic is being that natural you. It's being the unadulterated, just totally clean. I wouldn't say clean, but just fearless being you, being whatever it is that authenticity is that you put forth. It is that where you're not filtering. It's unfiltered. You are being genuine and it's just you putting you forward and not being concerned about anything or anyone and just saying this is the authentic me, the raw, the unfiltered, the naked you. Oh, I love all of those words. Naked, raw, unfiltered. 
I like the fact that you didn't try to use clean either. <laughs> it's very messy. It's very yes, it is. <laughs> That's why I had to clean it up. I was like, no, not clean, but yeah, just that. Yeah. So, have you always been authentic? No, I have not. Um, and I have to truly be authentic right now and be honest. No, I lived, you know, for many years as a younger person in in elementary, kind of in grade school and high school, um, I was always someone else's self. Um, I had a lot of wounds, a lot of holes. And so because I had those holes and those wounds, I let I filled them with other people. I filled them with other people's experiences and lives. And so no, I have not always been authentic. I was afraid to be that because I was afraid that people would reject the authentic me. If I spoke my mind, then I would lose a friend. If I spoke my mind, then I would lose that guy. If I spoke my mind, then there would be opposition. And I never wanted to have opposition when I was growing up. So, yeah. Mm. Wow. What was that like? Not being able to be your authentic self and worrying about the fear of rejection and you know, filling your wounds with other people's stuff. Yeah. For me, it was like there was a lot of confusion, uneasiness. Um, There was, I didn't have a true identity. I didn't know who I was. Truly did not know who I was. And living other people's lives or selves is like living a lie. And it's also indicative of being a chameleon. That's what I want to say. It's analogous to being a chameleon. You change every time you get near or around a group of people. And that's what I did growing up. Um, I didn't become the authentic Rita until I got probably in my late 20s, early 30s. So very long time before I became who I truly was and who God made me to be. Wow. So, and, and I like the fact that it's in your 20s and it's in your 30s because people just feel like it's something that just happens and it's definitely something that it sounds like has evolved. Would you say that you, like before that happened, that you were wearing a mask? Uh, absolutely. There are times where I did wear a mask all the time. Do you have a name for it? I know because I, it was, it was, um, maybe fake, phony, um, <laughs> fear, fearful. Um, that was, that was the name. Those were names, um, fake, phony and fearful. <laughs> like those were the names because it was whether I was fearful to say no to these people who I call my friends to say no to them. If I didn't like a certain thing or I didn't want to do a certain thing. I was fearful, phony, because I may have said, oh, yeah, I do like that. And I don't like it. So, yeah, those were were my masks that I'm. Yeah. And so it goes back to it kind of sounds like it all goes back to what we're going to talk a bit more about today. And that is the rejection. Right. I'm going to be fake and phony because I want to avoid rejection. I'm fearful because I want to avoid rejection. You know, and I talk especially with the perfectionism, that's like the deep fear, one of the deepest fears of perfectionism. 
is a rejection because it is painful, right? Um, we are wired to belong. We are wired to connect. And when that doesn't happen, it's very devastating. So, and I know you talk about rejection just yourself and then also with your girls that you mentor. So tell me a bit about rejection and kind of your story of rejection. Rejection started off early, um, even before I was, um, I think when I was just a, a baby, even probably before I was born, because I was born into, um, I was born out of a, an adulterate, not want to say adultery. It was, I was born out of a, an affair, a relationship that was perceived as and labeled as, you know, illegitimate because my mom was married to someone else and separated. So I was born out of that. And, um, from that point, I experienced the rejection from the, my siblings, my, all my older siblings all have the same dad married to my mom. And so I come along as this child who's outside of the marriage and I'm that rejection. I get from that side of the family, the husband, my mom's husband. Um, I get that rejection. And then I kind of feel a sense of being by myself or alone because my sisters and brothers know that I'm not their full blood sister, full blood sister. So that's one of the pieces of rejection that I experienced. And then growing up, starting when I was about five years old, I found I was diagnosed actually as having being permanently deaf in my right ear. And that came from the multiple ear infections when I was little. And so of course, going to school, my mom would have to go up to the school, tell the teachers, they would sit me in the front. Everyone would know. And then of course, children are cruel. And so children will talk about you. And they did. They made fun of me. They talked about me. They did all kinds of um, mean things. And so I hated to tell people that I was deaf in my right ear. And I never wanted to get a hearing aid because then that was the, the big sign that says, hey, everybody, she's deaf. So I avoided hearing aids for a very long time until I became maybe in college. So I was a functioning uh, hearing impaired person for years. I learned to read lips. I learned a little bit of sign language, but I really hid it. And I would not tell people that I was deaf in my right ear. Why? Because I felt like people would reject me, especially guys. I would never tell a guy that liked me that I was deaf, but he knew something was wrong. Cause I would always say, huh, what did you say? And then, <laughs> and I would, I would also look at his lips and he wonder, why are you looking at my teeth all the time? I just read lips. So yeah, those were my early times of rejection. And then of course, going into experiencing rejection from my actual biological father um, later on when I, wow, that's a lot. Yeah, definitely. So experiencing rejection with him was kind of the, I think it was the icebreaker. It was the, it was the icebreaker for me now saying, you know what? Enough. Enough is enough. I'm getting ready to heal from this. I'm getting ready to fight against this. And I'm going to help other people triumph against this because this is ridiculous. 
And so that was my start. When my dad rejected me for his girlfriend, when he got out of prison, that to me just was the ultimate. And I had to learn how to forgive and to heal and to move forward. Wow. That was a catalyst. That was, that was a catalyst. That is a lot of rejection, like you were saying, even just from the womb, even before you come. So it's just like this aura and this essence of just continual rejection. How did that feel emotionally? For me, I felt like I didn't have a place, that I was not good enough, that I was this leper, um, for lack of better terms. You know, no one wanted to have me around or that I wasn't worth anything. I had to always prove myself. And that's, that's where the perfectionism came in. That's where the overachieving, overachiever came in. Those were some of my other masks that I wore. Perfectionism, overachiever, always needing to be the smart one because I thought that's all I had going for me is being smart. Being able to be academically sound was my strength because I felt like I wasn't attractive enough, pretty enough. Um, I didn't think that people or that I was significant. And so that's how I felt growing up when I experienced all of that rejection. It was always like, why me? Why do I have to have all of this? Why can't I have a dad in the house like my friends? Why do I have to be deaf in my right? Why, Lord? Why, God? And I didn't even know God then, but it was like I knew God. I knew that there was a God but I didn't have a relationship, but I still said, why, why me? Why? So. Wow. That must feel really, or felt really lonely. And I was, I think that they were truly my friends. They were just people who I um, attached myself to, to have a sense of self, a, a phony sense of self to have a sense of belonging. When I go through and filter everything and take that flower sifter and sift everybody through, I can see that I had maybe two really, really good friends. And those friends are my friends now to this day. And they were my friends in elementary, middle school and high school. Yeah. Wow. That's so good. So we talked a bit about you wearing the mask and being fake and, and kind of phony as being part of that response to rejection. What were some of those other responses that perhaps or behaviors that weren't healthy as a response to this experience of rejection? Wanting to be accepted. And when I wanted to be accepted, I would uh, compromise. I would compromise my standards. I would compromise myself. Um, especially when it came to boys and men, um, you know, not being not being the one to say, don't touch me or no. If they did show me some type of attention, it didn't matter what it was. Instead of me putting them in check and saying that's disrespectful, 
I allowed that because it was like, at least I'm getting some kind of attention. At least somebody's paying attention to me. So I compromised and settled a lot um, growing up for that attention because number one, dad wasn't there. Dad was, dad was in jail since I was five. So dad was in jail since I was five. I had no guidance, no direction, no male example to teach me and show me that, Hey, this is not what you allow guys to say or do to you. You don't have to settle. You're beautiful. You are worthy. You are accepted. So I did not have any of that growing up my whole life, 22 years, he was in jail, 22 years. And so for, from the time I was five to the time I turned 27, 28, I didn't have my father in my life. So he missed every major milestone in my life, every last one. And we know when the father's not there, that's a big wound. That's a big gap. And the fathers are so important. Fathers are essential. They are, I don't know why people want to throw away and say a father. Fathers are so they are vital to this world, to the vein of this world, to the, they are like blood in a body. They, we need them. We need dads. Um, there's something about a male presence and guidance, one that's authentic, um, very powerful. So, wow. I can really relate to the settling or compromising with the men through fear of rejection definitely something I've done um, and I always tell people it's like it's not until later on in life and then you can still slip up and do that but thank you for sharing that because I think that not only can I relate but a lot of the listeners can relate to that piece of settling or compromising through I'm fearful that this person's going to reject me like it's, it's uh, I hear the same story over and over and over and over again and it doesn't change. So you get to 28, 28, and you're like, that's enough. 28, the, the, that's when the fireworks happen. And then I said, that's enough. So my father was released from prison and I had saved up my money and I decided to fly back home from, I left from Atlanta. I took a week off because I knew that I needed to solidify some things with him, settle some things and also talk to him and just let him know that I wanted to start over a clean slate. And so I saved up my money, bought a plane ticket, flew up there and, and settled my life to spend one week there. And so when my time there, I spent a lot of time with him. So we talked, we talked about a lot. We caught up. I asked him a lot of questions about what it was like for him, even though I visited him when he was in prison, I still wanted to know him because I, I missed out on him. So we talked for a very long time. And then um, it, I remember walking with him down the street. It was a sunny day. And I remember walking and saying, Hey, well, listen, you know, since I've come up here, why don't you come down to Atlanta and spend some time there and kind of get to see my life and where I live and what I do. And so I remember 
that moment, and I'll never forget this moment. And he told me, he said, well, I can't do that right now because I have to take care of my girlfriend. And when he said that to me, he said, you know, I'll have to do that later because I need to take care of her. She's not feeling well or something like that. And um, so I said, hmm. I said, oh, okay. So that dart, it was more than a dart. It was like a dagger. It was like, it cut me deep when he said that. And I was like, this is some BS right here. I mean, really, I literally said, this man doesn't have a clue. And so from that point, I said, okay. So I ended the visit. I said, okay, it's time for me to go. I got to go eat. So I went back to my mom's house and I asked my mom to come outside to the backyard. And so we sat on the bench in the, in the yard, in the backyard. And I sat on that bench and I told her, and my mother cried as well. And I told her, I said, do you know what this man told me? I was like, he told me he can't come and spend time with me because he has to take care of his girlfriend. I was like, are you kidding me? I said, now all these years we've been driving two hours when I was in school to go and see him. We were driving two hours one way, four hours of our lives, twice a month to go and see him in a maximum security prison, getting checked and and frisked and all of these things to see him and putting money on his books and all of these things, writing him letters, supporting him while he's going through this trauma. And this man, and so my mom just wept and I cried too. And then I told her, I said, you know what? That's it. I said, you know, I'm I'm wiping my hands. I'm going to kick the dust off my feet. I'm going to wipe my hands clean and I'm walking away from this. And so from that point, it just, that catapulted me into studying rejection. My mom was buying me all these books, especially by Joyce Meyer. I was studying all these things about healing from rejection because that cut me so deep that I was in pain. Literally, my body was in pain from what he said to me. So I can't imagine the pain that you're going, that you went through and the disappointment and the huge rejection. What made you, and I want to say this, what made you choose healing? Because you could have chose revenge. One of the reasons that I chose healing was because of my recent foundation of me really giving my life to Christ. So I was not, like I said before, I didn't know God. We didn't grow up in church. Um, and I didn't, didn't know Christ until my mid-20s, late-20s probably close to the age that he rejected me. It was probably around maybe, I'd say about 25, 26. So yeah, around that time. And because of that foundation that I had about forgiveness and about there's a spirit behind a person that makes them do certain things, that's what propelled me to go in the healing direction as opposed to the revenge direction and cursing him out and you know, saying, you know, to hell with you, all of that stuff. I did not. I chose the high road. I chose the road that would get me to a place of peace because that's what I wanted. Mm, To the peace and having that foundation, that is what drove you. Like essentially God drove you and really encouraged you to like, no, you need this healing. And 
And when do you, I don't want to say when do you, because people are, I don't feel like the healing of rejection ends. Yeah, it's something that we have different situations and we get rejected again. When do you feel like you were starting? Like how long do you feel like it took to feel like, oh, this wound doesn't dig so deep? Or, you know, because I always say to people, it's not like the thoughts never come up or anything like that. But when do you feel like it wasn't as intense? That's probably what I'm looking for. To be honest with you, it took me, even though I knew God now and I had a relationship with Christ, it took me about 10 years to really get to a point where I wasn't angry um, and that I can really say that I forgave him and that it didn't hurt. And, and And I'm saying that because when you want something like healing, you help other people too while you're going through it. That was, that was for me. I'm saying that for me. Everybody can't do that. But for me, that's what helped me heal. And to say that I was really over it, like I said, it took me about 10 years. And I say that because from 28 to 38, um, those years right there, I immersed myself in healing from rejection because I had so many other wounds before him. Well, starting with him and my mom getting together and then all of the wounds in between all of those holes from childhood, from from all of those people and those men and those boys and those classmates. It took 10 years for me to really look at and see myself and see and, and get those wounds authentically healed. So. I just had to immerse myself. I immersed myself in all of those books that I would read about real friendships, godly friendships, self-worth, knowing and being accepted in the beloved according to God's word, really making that a reality, not allowing for the memories to creep up and make me feel and retract and go back. All of that stuff, I was able to truly release it. And I also went to therapy. I went to a um, Christian therapist at my church and I released everything. When I did that, that helped me as well. So in that 10 years, and I can't remember, I think it was probably, mm, I was probably maybe 30 in my thirties, my early thirties, when I finally said I need a therapist. And so I did go to a Christian counselor therapist and I just laid everything on the altar to that man. To the And I actually chose a man therapist because of the symbolism and also knowing that I needed that male guidance. And so, yeah, that it, it took me about 10 years to really release everything and be free. And within that 10 years, you still experience life, you still experience joy, but it was just this continuous process that you're going through on the healing journey. Which, which, and of course, you know, experiencing breakthroughs. I love that. 10 years. Wow. To recognize all those walls that I put up. I had a lot of inner vows, a lot of walls that I put up, a lot of protection. That Those walls actually prevented me from other people who were there. So it delayed my healing. That's why it took 10 years, because I had all these walls. 
And during that time, I recognized that I was like, I made a vow that I would never do X, Y, Z again, or I would never let that person do that to me again, or I would never do that again. And so by that, when someone came along, whether it was a woman or a man to be my friend, my true friend, I didn't let them in. I was out of balance. And so even though I was healing and immersing myself in healing, I was still out of balance because I was saying right now, let me close myself off. Let me close myself off and heal with me and Jesus only. Let's just me and Jesus, nobody else, just me and Jesus. So that's what it was. (laughs) It's almost, you know what it reminds me of when we say that is like, I'm just going to do me and Jesus. And um, it's it's almost as like, I want to heal perfectly. And then I'll connect with people. Oh, God, it's so deceptive. That is so that's such a that's such a deceptive way to think. My God, we do so much more harm than good. When we think that way, you got to let people in. And you have to trust God that he's going to protect you in the process. Because mm, I'm sure you still experience. Oh, yeah. Or experience rejection. My approach was different. The way I wasn't wearing those glasses anymore, you know, those rejection colored glasses. And so I didn't see everybody um, and everything as me looking at things like I'm the victim. I did not. So, yes, I still experienced the rejection, but my response to it was quite different once I walked in my hill. What did your glasses, what do they look like now? What did they change to from the victim to what? Victorious, God loves me regardless of whatever happens. Whoever doesn't accept me, I'm accepted by God. And that's all that matters. God will send people across my path, laborers to love me the way I'm supposed to be loved, not the way I want it, but the way I'm supposed to and the way he created. So that's what my glasses look like now. I see everything as the compassion of Jesus. And so even if you do me wrong and you curse me out, I'm praying for you now. You can't scar me. You can't leave a wound on me. I'm not going to let you leave a mark on my body anymore, on my spirit, on my emotions. That's, that's how I see things now. It sounds so freeing. It sounds so freeing. I am such a happy person. <laughs> totally different from the way I was. What would so you say is some of the, I know, understanding you're accepted, how God loves you. Are there any other things you learned along the way? And of course your vows, but anything else you've learned that were important for healing from the wound of rejection? I always say immersing myself with um, books and, and video making positive affirmations and declarations daily. I never miss a day without saying something about myself in the mirror, as well as things that are written. And so I do a lot of Charles Capps, um, um, God's creative power, confessions or declarations. And then I also do, there are some affirmations that I have um, for, they're like um, in a small book for women. And it, This one really covers the gamut for a woman. So that's something that I do daily. I still do that because like you said, and I'm so glad you said this, we're always in the process of healing from that because sometimes we may go backwards or something may trigger and then we're like, "Mm, nope, I'm not going back there. So the affirmations and the declarations are the things that keep me 
focused. It keeps me on the path. It keeps me from detouring and from I may look over there while I'm driving down my path, but my confessions like a rudder, they steer me on and keep me going where I'm supposed to go. That's so powerful. I love that. Thank you. Like there's so much power in words. Mm -hmm. So much. Mm -hmm. So much power in words. Um, Yeah. It's funny you say that today. I was doing confessions. I'm like, oh yeah, I think I need to get back into confessions and just declaring those things that are important because it changes your life in such a big way. I mean, when we think about it, whether you're doing it intentionally or not, your words have brought you to where you are today. So you can be intentional about where you want to be for sure. So one of the things I love, which you talked about is helping other people along the journey and along the way when you are healing. And you're just doing some amazing things with these young girls. I just love it. What with the with the young girls that you're mentoring, what is your desire for them? What is your heart for them? God gave this to me at the end of last year. A mission and a vision, but just to get people on the same page and my mission and vision and purpose, my simplified purpose is to help my girls heal from rejection so that they can elevate their self-esteem and win against bullying. And then that bullying piece, you can always substitute that and put in win against whatever it is, win against the pain, win against insecurity. But my whole thing is that I want my girls who are living that fatherless life I want them not to live out those father wounds, those daddy wounds that they have. I don't want them to go through and experience what I did growing up. There's a better way to handle it. There's a better way. I don't want their past, their toxic past to shorten or stop or hinder them from being successful early on like it did for me because my past almost stunted me. So yeah, that's one of the things that I really try to do is to get my girls to ensure that they know that they're loved, know that they're accepted, know that just because your father is not there doesn't make you less of a person, doesn't make you less of a human being, doesn't make you, it doesn't devalue you. You are priceless. You are be far beyond rubies. You are everything that God wants you and has created you to be. And you got to live that out. Mm. That's such a, those words are just so powerful and so nurturing. Um, And I really see you live that out with the young girls. So, and I've seen them. I've been and I've mentored with Rita and I was like, oh my gosh, she is on point with these ladies. And they're just so confident. And, and you got them at just like right age in that middle. Is it middle school? No, elementary school. Middle school girls. But for the most part, I get them when they're fourth and fifth grade. Um, that is a ripe age, but the better age actually is to get them at five and six. That's really the age because though. I've done a lot of research and studies and it does say in um, research says that once a child is seven, then the majority of what has 
happened to them has etched in them and formulated their lives. Um, and it, it drives their path um, and decisions. And so I just know that for me at five, that's when I was deaf. And at five, that's when my father went to jail. So those things really affected my path in life. Well, you're just, you are doing it. I love it. So I could talk to you forever, but we don't have the time. But what's something you want to leave with the audience? My thing is, is to drop their toxic past so that they can experience true love. And, and I don't want them to, to hear that and me sound insensitive. I want them to hear that word, hear that phrase and say, heal from your toxic past so that you can experience true love. And the true love is the true love of God first, then the the horizontal love. So you can experience the vertical love first, which is the authentic love. And then you can, then your horizontals, everything else will line up. So that's my wish and my prayer for anyone and everyone listening is that I just don't want people to let their past, don't let your past stop you from all of the opportunities that are out there. I mean, I'm talking about from even how your parents raised you with money. Um, you know, even how you were told that you had to go to college and some people went to college and they weren't supposed to. Those things, they affect our lives. And so when we can heal from our toxic past and our misconceptions, then we can live a fruitful, successful life. Mm, beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you. How can people connect with you and shower you with love? Well, for I am on, of course, Instagram is uh, just be beautiful seven. And then I am on Twitter with just be beautiful, but it doesn't have the L at the end. The seven is the L and I'm on Facebook, which is Rita L McLaughlin. That's my general Facebook. And then the Rita underscore just be beautiful is my Facebook for Instagram connect. And if they want to see all the grand things that I do with the girls, the awesome things, they can go to my website, which is www.justbebeautiful.org. And I'm also on YouTube. Just look for me at Just Be Beautiful on YouTube. So we're there. Well, in the vein of being beautiful, this is a beautiful interview. So thank you so, so much. Appreciate you so much. You are awesome. You are doing some great things too. So you keep it up because people are getting healed, including me. Remember, we're still on that healing path. (laughs) Thank you. Didn't you just love that conversation? Oh my gosh, Rhea dropped so many gems. Um, So many gems that she distracted me and I didn't ask her about her books that helped. So just so you know, as I did ask her, some of the books that she did read, and I'm going to put this in the show notes, are that helped her with rejection is High Maintenance Relationships by Les Brown, Uprooting the Root of Rejection by Joyce Meyer, Beautiful Ashes by Joyce Meyer, and God's Remedy for Rejection by Derek Prince. 
And the last book that she also recommends is Relationships, What It Takes to Be a Friend by Dr. Pamela Reeve. So those are some of the books that she shared. I don't know about you, but just listen to her. She just sounded so powerful and confident and just really authentic and what it means to heal from rejection. So as always, please share with me, connect with Rita, follow her, let her know how much you love this episode and share it with your friends. Please tag us in social media on the Authentic Wednesday podcast. And thank you so much. If you connected with what you just heard, please subscribe, rate and review the podcast. You can stay connected by following our Instagram, Authentic Wednesday Podcast and visiting our website, AuthenticWednesday.com. Remember, authenticity is a journey, not a destination.